Up next, the Asia-Pacific Report. And joining us uh, this morning, this Thursday morning, Sanusha Naidu, Senior Research Associate based with the Institute for Global Dialogue. Good morning, Sanusha. Good morning. And thank you for joining us, Sanusha. Sanusha, Philippines overtaking Malaysia and Vietnam to become the fastest growing economy in Southeast Asia. I think back in the day that these um, Near East countries would be referred to as the tiger economies, including Malaysia, Indonesia. It seems that Philippines has done pretty well in the uh, post-Duterte years, and uh, they've overtaken these, well, economic regional powerhouses in in uh, in the name of Malaysia and Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, these were really, I mean, Southeast Asia was always seen as a kind of model for economic development and economic policy making by uh, institutions like the World Bank. If we go back to the 80s, um, countries like, well, city islands like Hong Kong, countries like um, Taiwan, etc., were considered to be the South Asia, uh, the East Asian giants. Um, and we're basically told, uh, countries like in Africa were told, this is the way you need to follow. You need to follow the East Asian economic model. And these were called Asian giants in, 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 in many ways. So the story to the, I mean, the fact of the matter is with Philippines now being, um, kind of touted as to become the fastest growing economy in Southeast Asia actually fits the bill in terms of where uh, Southeast Asia is in the context of um, its own economic trajectory. And this is possibly quite an important thing because at the end of the day, Southeast Asia and in particular Taiwan, I mean, the Philippines, have become quite an important dynamic for, um, for the way in which the World Bank and the, I- and the IMF have been grappling with understanding how the trajectory of the region will emerge. Now, in a way, I think that we do have certain problems in terms of becoming the fastest growing economy in, in, in Asia because part of those problems are that um, unemployment still remains a key issue, a factor. Um, the question of uh, stability is another issue that becomes a factor. And of course, the challenge is that this is happening at the back or in the context of what's going on in China. China's economy hasn't really been um, performing well. Um, The unemployment stats that have come out recently, as well as in terms of younger people not finding jobs, hasn't been a a good sign for the economy. But I think what's important for for, for, for Philippines is that uh, it's driven by consumption, it's driven by services, it's driven by investment. And I think these are key issues that, again, go back to the question around it's an export-led growth model as well. And by overtaking Vietnam and overtaking Malaysia, I think what um, we're seeing in terms of the national uh, development economic plan of the country is that this will help to position Philippines in the region. The, the challenge, I think, is we mustn't get too excited by these statistics. Stats are only in, are only as important in terms of and if development takes place with regard to um, the 
the what we call the human development index um and that is based on longevity education and and uh, employment um and so these are important things that need to be looked at but i think what's also interesting for this is that the per capita as well as the gdp overall um also comes at the back backdrop of geopolitical risks tensions with china over the south china sea and of course uh questions around whether domestically um philippines can retain its stability with elections etc that are coming through so yeah i think it's it's, it's a good sign for philippines because of its younger uh, demographic profile but at the same time i think that um where you have consumption as the key issue when a sluggish global economy um you can actually then find yourself fast coming a slower global a slower economy in terms of um growth phenomenon which is important in the context of economic development as well moving the discussion to new zealand beginning talks on joining uh, the aukus defense pact now, of course the aukus uh, defense pact between what's it um, united states uh, united kingdom and australia uh, signed a few years ago and there were talks of a number of regional um, you know uh, countries or, or, or countries with navies and military uh, joining as well i think south korea was also touted at one time that they would join um, aukus and here new zealand makes sense of course new zealand joining joining the aukus pact and um, when is this likely to uh, to take place um yeah i mean the context you provided is very important because i think that it raises questions about what's happening in the asia pacific uh what we call the asia pacific others like the us call it the indo pacific and the aukus defense pact which is really a defense pact between australia the uk um and 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 how they have defined this pact is something i think is 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 about what how the the region is being militarized so there's no kind of timetable in terms of when uh new zealand will join but they've begun diplomatic talks around this and they started wednesday yesterday and there've been inaugural meetings of defense and uh foreign ministers in terms of what would be the kind of trajectory of joining so what many analysts are beginning to phrase this as is pillar 2 of the orcus defense partnership uh and it's separate from pillar 1 which is designed to deliver nuclear power attack submarines to australia and what's interesting is that the talks that new zealand is having with australia um is really based on um the need to to have more kind of influence and to counter the influence of other political actors in the region so what makes this quite surprising is that new zealand has always been seen as a pacifist country and this pillar 2 of the orcus is really as the um as 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 the defense uh, i mean the foreign minister said um is that it's about the examination of where we're going to be looking uh the relationship going forward and i think you know this pillar 2 is again not just about the nuclear attack but it's about what many countries agreed to or would like to agree to that is not yet made public and that is that it that, that it's not about a nuclear kind of engagement 
because New Zealand, as I said, is a pacifist country and is also a country that follows a nuclear-free policy. So this now would actually raise questions in terms of what this Pillar 2 is about and what it means in terms of the fact that they are, uh, New Zealand sees the U.S. as neglecting the region and this is something that they feel they need to protect the kind of collective security engagement um, within the region. And specifically, I think, looking at the way China's um, footprint in the region has also raised questions about how to deal with China's influence, despite the fact that um, the foreign minister of New Zealand did not mention China by name. So I think this kind of tension between Washington and Beijing, the influence in the Pacific has increased um, this idea for, 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 for looking at how security, defense, aid and infrastructure can actually be addressed in terms of the kind of collective engagements AUKUS 2 may provide. So I think, you know, that is something that essentially is a watching brief and something that needs to be looked at much more seriously because if, if New Zealand is feeling that way, then it becomes a much more a, a, a crowded region, but it becomes a much more volatile region in, in, in terms of the future and where it's going. So, Lucia, finally, butter chicken wars heating up. I think this is out of Delhi. Uh, but, of course, the, the legal battle will probably be maybe global for that matter. One uh, group claiming that they are the so-called inventors. wouldn't call it inventors, may, maybe maybe commercializers of the butter chicken uh, the recipe. And the others are disagreeing. What's the latest on the butter chicken wars coming out of the subcontinent? Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's basically... Uh, to, to New Delhi restaurants, uh, both claiming that um, they have a premium in terms of who invented butter chicken, uh, and not just bragging rights about how the butter chicken tastes and who's the be- who has the better uh, butter chicken recipe or butter chicken uh, 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 curry. But it's now at the High Court in Delhi, and I think that in itself tells you this is the latest. Uh, being at the High Court in Delhi uh, makes it now a kind of legal battle in terms of intellectual property rights, which is quite fascinating. And I think these butter chicken, butter chicken dishes that come out of one of the, 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 the restaurants um, is said to be contributing heavily to tandoori cuisine. So the legal battle is really around um, two restaurants, as I mentioned. And both restaurants are essentially saying that they are the ones that actually created the, the, the kind of uh, buttered chicken gravy um, in a way that makes it much more um, innovative, that makes it much more palatable, that has created a kind of um, a, a spur in terms of interest. And they want to actually claim that as their bragging rights as well. It's a bizarre case, if I may be as bold as that. And um, the, the the challenge, I think, in this kind of who takes a kind of title of winner in terms of this popularity contest, which is what really it is, is really around these challenges of intellectual property rights and, and lawsuits and so forth. Uh, because it also means that it creates um, an interest, particularly amongst people like 
uh, readers who are reading this, this this story and who may visit uh, Delhi to, to to essentially go to either of the restaurants, depending what 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 the outcome of the legal battle is, and to actually see what is the whole story about and whether or not this this kind of you know who has the better butter chicken curry or the butter chicken uh, cuisine is, is is really in terms of uh, being right. So. This is not necessarily an, uh, um, a precedented case. Uh, the Delhi High Court had to actually also rule another battle be- between two family members um, over a tandoon kebab. So I think this is something I think is going to be fascinating to follow in terms of the ruling when it comes out. Sanusha Naidu, thank you for joining us for the Asia-Pacific Report this uh, morning and concluding upon that butter chicken note. Uh, thank you for your time and have a good uh, weekend ahead of you, Sanusha. Thank you so much and likewise to you and the listeners. 6.32 a.m., bottom of the hour, news headlines, followed by our recitation of Surah Yasin for this morning. And this morning, Surah Yasin is south with the voice of Sheikh Mansour al-Salimi. Sabahu Muslim is proudly sponsored by Shiraz Auto, agents for Mercedes-Benz cars and Mercedes-Benz vans. Call us on 011-213-1100 or visit our website at shirazauto.co.za. News Headlines a blitz of what's current on Radio Islam International. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. New news headlines locally. It's a Queenie Mayam. Golisika Wunda lives to fight another day. And just let the mayor sit down and relax, not exercising uh, Section 52 of the MFMA, which stipulates clearly that his job is to ensure that uh, he supervises city manager, and city manager then must supervise his uh, staff. Mm-hmm. So we, we are really honored that uh, we make them shaking.